From Psalm 91, beginning in verse 9. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the servant. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. The word of the Lord. From the book of Hebrews in chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. That is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when he, when he is called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever, in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high, to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. The word of the Lord. From the gospel according to St. Mark, beginning with verse 35 of chapter 10. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want for me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink? or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. You may be seated. Great to see you all this morning. Good to be with you. If somebody wants to bring, yeah, Wes, you want to bring those lights up for us? Um, it is a special day today. Um, to give you a heads up as we prepare um, for baptism here in a minute, uh, the kiddos are going to join us for baptism. We thought that would be a cool thing for them to participate in today, and so they're going to come in, so don't 
be caught off guard um, when they come in here, and that will be fun. Um, today, we're continuing a series that we've been walking through called The Words and the Music, and we're looking at selected psalms. The psalms are the prayer book of the Bible. And actually, you could say the Psalms are the songbook of the Bible. They are supposed to be sung. Originally, they were sung. We believe Jesus lived in a culture where not only did they sing the Psalms, they probably moved their body to the Psalms as well. It was a very kind of physical culture, and the Psalms are meant to be embodied and sung uh, with all of our heart and with our emotion. The first week of our series, we looked at Psalm 8, this idea of reflection, reflecting on who God is and who we are in light of who God is. And then last week, uh, we were so blessed to have Tracy Balzer with us lead us through Psalm 73. And uh, yeah, I, several of you had said just how wonderful and what a blessing it was to have her with us. And she looked at and, and spoke about this idea of perspective, of how our perspective on life changes when we're in the sanctuary and we're in God's presence, that everything shifts and changes this week, we're going to look at Psalm 91, and we're going to look at just a portion of Psalm 91. But first of all, we need to talk about, there's these like literary concerns whenever you approach a passage of scripture. Like, who is this written to? Like, what is it written about? Like, who are we supposed to be thinking about at this point? And the Psalms are kind of tricky in that way, because just like modern songs, there's a bit of ambiguity. That sometimes there's layers to who it's addressed to, who we can think of when we're kind of reading these particular psalms. And so Psalm 91 is no exception. Um, first of all, this psalm is talking about and talking to the king. Uh, we think King David, but some king of Israel, the one who was the head over the people of Israel. Um, in its original setting, the psalm was about God's faithfulness to that king. So this psalm that we read, and we're going to walk through it kind of piece by piece, but it was a reminder to the king of Israel, a reminder to David, God has always been faithful to you in the past, and he will always be faithful to you in the future, okay? Now, if you were a person in Israel and you heard this, this was comforting, because if your king was going to be protected and God was faithful to your king, then that meant you collectively as a people were also under God's hand. So you could read this psalm with yourself in mind as well, but it was ultimately written to the king or to the king to King David. So this is a psalm first about God's faithfulness, his rescue, his refuge for the king of Israel. And that's the first layer. But secondly, we read this not as ancient Israel. We read this as 21st century Christians, okay? So as Christians, we read this psalm as pointing to Jesus, as all the psalms do, okay? Um, Jesus had a significant relationship with the Psalms. He was a Jewish person who had the Psalms as his songbook, as his prayer book. So um, I heard somebody use the analogy that if one day you found, you stumbled into a music store and you found, come on guys, well, there was not a single clap with that. But... Well, if you got to ask for it, it's not the same. But let's say you go into a music store and you stumble upon an old piece of music and you begin to kind of walk through it and you see this piece of music was owned by Bob Dylan. And not only that, he's got his notes in the margin, right? <laughs> like you'd kind of go, whoa, this is a pretty special kind of thing, right? Well, in some sense, we have in the New Testament, Jesus taking the Psalms and speaking them himself as part of his prayer life that they become his, that his notes are all over them in the New Testament, okay? So this is Jesus's psalm book. He grew up singing the psalms, reciting the psalms. They were his. And if you, looked at, you look at his life, he was immersed in the psalms. 
It was as if he prayed them regularly, which he probably did. He acted them out even to that point. Israel's story, we believe as Christians, all of the Old Testament and Israel's story, including the Psalms, point us to Jesus. Okay, they point to him. So when we read this Psalm about God's faithfulness to an ancient king, we can actually read it about God's faithfulness to the ultimate king of Israel, Jesus himself. We'll come back to that here in a minute, but it's important that when we read the Psalms, we know these things because it's not just a generic Psalm addressed to us, okay? It's not just that we open it up and we just go, yeah, this is just a Psalm about how if you're nice to God, he'll be good to you, right? No, there's some layers that are important for us to know here. Honestly, I think that's comforting because when I see phrases that are like, because you've been true to me or because you've been right to me, then I will be your refuge or your rescue in the Psalms. I get a little intimidated because I don't know about you, there are some times that I am not always true to God. There are some times where I turn to other things. There are some times where I miss the mark. And if it's all up to me and my moral achievement, being able to serve God perfectly, I'm gonna miss it. But if I think of it in terms of the fact that Jesus was the one who was perfectly faithful, these are his songs, that he was faithful on our behalf. And because of his faithfulness, we're invited into the story. That is so freeing. Jesus was faithful where we were unfaithful. Because of his faithfulness, we are part and invited into God's family. So that's where in a third sense, we can read the Psalms about us. They're about faithfulness to the king. They're about faithfulness to Jesus. And ultimately because of Jesus, we are part of God's family. So this is about God's faithfulness to us. We can cling to the promises of the Psalms because of the presence of Jesus or because of, the, because of who Jesus is, the faithfulness of him. This is where we're invited to let the artistry of the Psalms take over. Like when we read these, we go, well, who was this written to? Is it about faithfulness to a king? Is it about faithfulness to Jesus? Is it about faithfulness to me? Well, the answer is yes. It's about God's faithfulness. <laughs> That's what the Psalm is about. All right, so the first part of our section today says, if you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. I love what this Psalm says, but at first this phrase seems too good to be true, right? I don't know about you, but the first thing I wanna do is call BS on this Psalm when I read it, okay? I wanna argue with it. Okay, I know a lot of people have been faithful to God who have experienced disaster in their life. Disaster has come very near their tent, okay? I've seen it. In fact, scripture even attests to it. It says, rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. So what is this talking about? Is the psalmist saying you won't experience disaster if you're faithful to God? We have to see this in context. The previous passage and the passages before it have talked about the wicked and the, the, what the, awaits the wicked, the negative things that await the wicked. This is a contrast. So verse eight has spoken about the punishment of the wicked. And here he's saying, your experience will be different if you choose to make the most high your refuge. What does that mean? It means your end destination, the meaning that comes out of it all will be different if you choose to make the most high your refuge. This doesn't mean trouble will never befall you, but it does mean that in the midst of trouble, you have a refuge. And that refuge changes your perspective on that disaster, okay? 
Knowing that even in the midst of trouble, God is there with you, that matters. As Christians, it's not that we'll never experience trouble in our life, but knowing that there is a refuge in the midst of trouble, that changes things. It changes our perspective. It may not make it hurt less. It may not be that if we're faithful to God, then we just are free of hurt, free from difficulty. I don't think it means that. It doesn't make it less hard, but it does frame it differently. It, it, makes, it, it makes the meaning different for us, knowing that we are not alone and that Jesus walked through this for us. It, it continues by saying, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all ways. So this passage is, he will command his angels or his aids for you. This passage actually harkens back to this really important story in the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, there's a story where the children of Israel are set free from captivity in Egypt. It is the central story in the Old Testament. It is so, so critically important. They're set free from slavery in Egypt, and then they find themselves, right after they're set free, yay, we're free, the Passover's happened, we're on our way to the promised land, then all of a sudden they find themselves in a pickle. They have the Egyptian armies chasing them on one side. And then they have this giant Red Sea on the other side. They find themselves trapped. I've talked about this before, but this is important. Water is a really important metaphor in scripture. Anywhere you see water, especially in the Old Testament, you're supposed to kind of have some alarm bells that go off because water meant something in the first century. From the very beginning of creation, we see God creates out of the waters. So we have it the, in the beginning in the creation story, we have this, this deep, these murky waters and God creates out of the waters. The spirit, it says, hovers over these primordial waters to bring about intention, to bring about creation. In the ancient Jewish world, the waters represented chaos. They represented disorder. So anywhere in the Old Testament that you see waters, you're supposed to think, ooh, creepy. Like, oh, this is this mysterious unknown thing that we can't fully explain. There's chaos, there's disorder, there's something unknown. In fact, if you want, if you really want to read something weird in the Bible, go to Daniel chapter seven. There's this trippy vision that the prophet Daniel has about these monsters, these sea monsters, and they all look really, really weird. And they come out of the water. And Daniel says, there will be someone like the son of man who will come and defeat all of these these, uh, these monsters, but they come from the water. The water's scary, it's unknown, it's, we don't know what's coming from it. The consistent reminder to the children of Israel is that God is always the Lord over the waters. That he is the one who takes that chaos, that unknown, that creepiness, and actually creates out of them. In the Exodus story, again, the central narrative of the Old Testament, the children of Israel have hostile armies on one side and the water on the other side. The chaotic unknown is ahead of them, this unknown evil that they can't explain. And I wanna suggest that this Psalm that we're reading today is not saying if you follow God, you'll never encounter the waters, that you'll never encounter difficulty. That's not what the Psalm is saying today. But what it is saying is that if you face trouble, if you face the waters, those who are in trouble will have God's aids, will have God's response. Only those who are in the storm need a refuge. As we continue the next 
verse says, they will lift you up in their hands. So notice the, um, it, it, the kind of literal thing here is on their hands, they will carry you. So God's aides somehow are carrying you, walking you through it, carrying you through the storm. Again, this harkens back to that Red Sea story where God says, later he said, in Egypt, I carried you on eagle's wings, okay? So what exactly happened at the Red Sea when the children of Israel are stuck between the enemies and the water? Well, notice God doesn't make the sea disappear, does he? He doesn't take away Pharaoh's army in the sense that they just vanish. He doesn't teleport Israel from one side to the other. We think he possibly could have done that. No, he actually parts the water so that Israel's deliverance is not around the water, not away from the water, it's straight through the water. God does not deliver them from chaos, he delivers them through chaos. He carries them through it. This Psalm today is saying, your God has proven himself faithful. He's proven himself true at the Red Sea and he will do that for you as well. This is perhaps one of the reasons why in the New Testament, it's so significant that Jesus has several miracles that have to do with water. So if you read that, um, if you read the New Testament, you see he turns water into wine. So he creates something out of water, right? He stills the storm, okay? He walks on the sea. Jesus is this creator God in the flesh, the one who is Lord over the chaos, the one who has mastery over the water. Remember in the pagan world, they had different gods for all the different parts of nature. So the one of the sea was the especially creepy one with all the sea monsters and stuff. But God is Lord of that. He's over all of that. In fact, quickly after Christ's death, the early Christians began to think of his death as like a new Red Sea crossing, okay? This time, Jesus, who's Israel's representative, has crossed not the Red Sea, but the great sea of death itself and come across to the other side in resurrection. This was something that none of Jesus' disciples expected to happen. So resurrection was not something that they really anticipated. Um, in fact, when Jesus died, the disciples were devastated. You would be too. They, they put their hope in Jesus as the true king and he lost to the bad guys, okay? He, they put their hope in him and he died. It was over. They're not sitting around waiting for resurrection. They're like, we gotta find something else to do with our lives. Maybe we have to go back to fishing. They didn't expect resurrection to happen. Just like at the Red Sea, the answer was not around death like they expected, but through it. Jesus took on every part of the human experience, including death itself. This great obstacle that we all face, the world's greatest fear. He took on sin and death and then he conquered it. Some psychologists have suggested that every fear we have in life is rooted in the great fear of death, that we're afraid of death, that every other fear tends to come from that. We fear this loss of existence, we fear this emptiness or not doing enough or, or what is death going to be like? Well, for Israel, after they crossed the Red Sea, the Red Sea and sea itself was no longer an object of fear for them, but it became an opportunity for celebration, for singing and for rejoicing because God had parted the Red Sea on their behalf. For the Christian, death is no longer an object of fear. We no longer live lives paralyzed 
by hollow existence, just hoping if we accumulate enough stuff, if we get enough accomplishments, if we have a strong enough reputation before we die, then that's the answer to life. No, we have a greater hope that this world as it is, is not all that there is. Christ has conquered sin and death. For the early Christians, baptism became this way of participating in Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. It was part of saying, that's my story. That's the people who we are. We are not the people that go around the waters. We are the people that give up our life. We are the people that go through the waters and our God is always faithful and he always delivers us every single time. For the early Christians, baptism was that thing, that identification with Jesus and who he is. The next line of our Psalm says that, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So what the Psalm does there is it begins to like describe these enemies that the king could face, okay? So it lists all these different enemies. So it says, you will not strike your foot against a stone. Well, that sounds a little bit trivial. Are you saying that when I go on a hike, I'm not gonna stub my toe? Well, no, in the ancient world, it meant more than that. Um, it meant that, um, it meant that you would fall to your death, that if you struck your foot against the stone, then you would tumble and you would fall. So are we saying that if I follow Jesus, if I'm faithful to God, I won't ever stub my toe in life? No. In fact, I wanna suggest we very well might stub our toe. <laughs> the Christian journey is full of falls and stumbles and times where we have to dust ourselves off and move on. But strike your foot against the stone means ultimately you will not falter, that God has you, that you will not fail. This passage is significant in the life of Jesus because in Matthew chapter four, Jesus is tempted in the desert and the devil's second temptation of Jesus uses this Psalm. So he takes, he takes Jesus to the highest point of the temple and he says to him, all right, if you're really who you think you are, if you're really the son of God, jump off of this and God's angels will protect you. So he's using this Psalm to try to tempt Jesus here. He's saying, remember, that's who you are. Throw yourself down for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you and lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. But Jesus recognizes that the devil's twisting these verses. This verse is not about testing God. It's about trusting God. Testing God is saying, hey, I'm God's son. I can kind of do whatever I want. God's gonna kind of protect me. So check this out. That's what Jesus could have done, right? But no, trusting God is saying, all I have to do is be faithful. I don't have to put God to the test. I trust in this identity that God has given me. Then it says, you will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. This recalls this human vocation to have dominion over the world. We talked a few weeks ago about how human beings are called to care for creation, we're called to care for our world. Remember we did that blessing of the animals gathering and it's kind of our reminder that we are stewards of even the creatures of our world. It's this beautiful thing. We're not called to selfishly dominate the world and its creatures. We're called to be self-giving, caring for the physical world. And yet there is a reminder here that God is Lord of the world and he's given us that calling to care for the world. And because our world is broken, there will be a conflict. There will be things in our world that try to tear us down. 
we are to exercise that dominion that we have because of God, we have this dominion. We have this leadership over the world. The words adder and serpent here point back to Genesis chapter three. The serpent in the garden of Eden was the one who deceived Adam and Eve and led them to disobey God. So God then says to the serpent, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. You will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There's this ongoing strife that happens in a broken world between humanity and between everything else in our world. And it's represented in this serpent. Well, what this Psalm is saying is, There's nothing in creation that is bigger or stronger than God. There's nothing beyond. There's no nothing that you experience, no natural kind of circumstance in your life that you just go, oh, I've got to succumb to this. I've got to give up to this. No, God is Lord of the world. Those broken things in creation will not topple you. Then as we end the Psalm here, we come close to the end here. Um, It says, because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. This passage is about the identity of the king, that the king is the one who belongs to God, that they are bound together. And if we think of this Psalm being about Jesus, we think about the relationship between God, the father and God, the son, there is this bond of love between them. And the beauty is because of Jesus, we are brought into the family of God. We are brought into that love. Romans 8, 14 says, for those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. So we can read this Psalm about us as well because of Jesus. The NIV says these words, because he loves me, says the Lord. But literally, it's interesting here, it's because to me he is attracted. That's the definition of this word, because to me he is attracted. The king has not been attracted to other deities or relied on his own physical resources. He has been attracted to God. This is language of emotion, of affection. This language here is not logical, rational choosing of the Lord. This is, I am drawn to you. I am attracted to the Lord. But then he follows it up by saying, the king will be lifted to safety because he acknowledged my name. Now that is a logical, rational choice. So we have both here. We have the king is attracted to God. And then also the king has made a choice to acknowledge God. Both of those are present here. Our faith involves both affection and choice. Both of those go together. I don't know if you've known people this way or you tend to be this way, but there are many who try to have the affection of faith without the confession and the acknowledgement of faith. There are some who have a confession and acknowledgement of faith and they downplay and they're very negative towards affection, right? Or any kind of emotion. But our faith is better. Some of us are drawn to one more than the other and that's totally fine, but we can't divorce the two. We can't say our faith is only logical because inevitably something will happen that doesn't make sense to you. There are things in faith that we don't fully understand. At the same time, we can't say that our faith is just emotional or affective because um, if we do that, our emotions are fleeting. They may lead us astray. There's gonna be times in your Christian journey where 
You acknowledge God, but you don't feel the affections of faith. That's okay. There are going to be times in life where you feel the affections of faith. You're so drawn. You're so kind of energized by faith. And yet you don't, can't fully make sense of your faith. That's okay. It's okay. But we can't divorce the two from each other and say that one is um, less important than the other. For those of you who are married, this is probably nothing new to you. When you're first married, there are these initial feelings, this kind of emotional high that happens when you're first married. In fact, scientists have said that those initial feelings um, are a lot like being on drugs. Like it's the same kind of chemical thing happening in your brain when, when you first get married. And honestly, I think those initial feelings that happen in dating and in early marriage are God-given. Like they help us through those first stages of courtship and marriage. They help us to get past hurdles. They help us to set a course for the rest of our lives. Now, over time, I want to be careful I say this, but over time, those initial feelings can fade. You may have noticed that. It's probably better to say they change, okay? As you spend time together, as you go through difficult things together, your relationship begins to morph and mature. So you can't build the relationship completely on those initial feelings, those initial affections, because sometimes those will fade. But that's where our wedding, the wedding vows are so critical, okay? That's the other portion of this. When I've done weddings for couples and they say their vows, it's obvious it's so beautiful to them, but it's so, and it feels so easy to say in that moment. They roll off the tongue for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health till death do you part. You not only have affection for that person, you have acknowledged that person. You have chosen that person. But there are times in life where you, you have more poorer than richer. You have more sickness than health. You see their faults more than their strengths. And it's in those moments where we remember that marriage and any relationship is not only attraction to that person, but it is acknowledgement, it is choosing. Now, here's the beautiful thing about all relationships. When we're willing to do that, when we walk through that, when we acknowledge that over and over again, there are feelings that come with that, okay? So we're not cynical. Christians are not cynical like the world views marriage, where we go, um, well, you've been married for a while. Yeah, you don't really like each other all that much, but you kind of walk through it anyway, right? No. In marriage, we believe we actually, when we choose one another, that there are feelings on the other side of that, right? That are actually way better than the first ones that we've experienced when we continue to choose each other over and over again. Listen to this, because he is bound to me in love, therefore I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. Our faith is not driven by feelings. Also, it's not primarily a transaction. If we do this, our God will respond this way. Our faith is relational, that we have this relationship. We have been called by the one true God, the one who is loving, the one who is faithful, We then step into our faith, not simply as an individual, but as part of a family. Today, as we participate in baptism, we are welcoming Brent into God's family. We are affirming that. We are celebrating that. Now, this raises a question sometimes for people like, well, hasn't Brent been part of God's family this whole time? 
Which, yeah, the answer is yes. As human beings, we wanna like find, well, when's the exact moment? Like, when do we do this? When does this kind of exact thing cross? We wanna make meaning out of things. We want things to be really clear as to when something happens. But I've told you this story before, but I think about um, Lucy, my little girl. Many of you, all of you know, I think, that we've adopted Lucy, that she's uh, part of our family through this beautiful miracle and blessing of adoption. Now, Lucy was born on May 16th, 2013, okay? When she was born, she was immediately part of our family, of course, right? Like right at that moment, she is part of our family. But then I also wanna say, she was part of our family from the beginning of the world, right? That God prepared her for this moment. But then also in Lucy's case, it took us 18 months before we were able to finalize her adoption, where the judge pounded on the table and says, we now declare that her name is Lucy Rachel Sharp, right? Which was also a beautiful moment. Well, when did she start being part of our family? Was it the beginning of the world? <laughs> was it at the ultrasound? Was it when we were chosen by her birth mother? Was it when she was born into the world? Or was it when the judge proclaimed the name? Well, the answer is yes, <laughs> in all of those moments, right? So I think it's so beautiful as I've um, talked with Brent just about his story. Um, Brent has been drawn to faith for some time. He has attended church. He attended his ch church with his family off and on as a child. In fact, he told us some stories the other night that I find just really cool, um, that he comes from a family of faith that his, his grandmother used to host potluck suppers in their little town in Georgia, or lunches um, in their little town in Georgia uh, after, after church on Sundays. And everybody went to his grandma's house. It's part of his legacy of faith. Uh, Brent shared with us just, he kind of had gone to church off and on with different girlfriends throughout his life, you know, for a while. <laughs> and then he and Heather started going to church regularly. Um, and, and then uh, went to a bunch of churches here in Nashville at different times until one day they got a door hanger from Sacrament Church, which I only found that out, or maybe I just forgot it, but I only found that out the other night that they got a door hanger. And I was telling people those door hangers never work. Nobody ever comes to our church. <laughs> but you guys have now been at Sacrament maybe three years or something? Or, yeah, three or four years. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think about these moments in his life, and then I think about Brent's participation in our community here, and just the life that he and Heather have brought to our community, and the ways that they step in, and they serve, and they reflect God's heart, and the fruit of the Spirit, and all that they do. And I think about those moments of faithfulness. Like, I want even today to point it, put us back in those potluck lunches at his grandma's house. And remember those kind of moments that have been drawing up to this point when he got that door hanger, you know, and, and all of these things that have pointed us in this direction. All of us can point to these in our own lives. Those moments in our family life, those moments in a, at church, those moments where we were invited to youth camp, right? And maybe we responded to an invitation. That moment when somebody sat down and really listened to our questions about faith, that moment where that guy with the slick hair on the TV just told you to put your hand on the screen, right? We can remember those moments, no matter how maybe weird some of them are, <laughs> remember those moments that point us somewhere, right? Brent and you have been in God's heart from the very beginning. God has drawn Brent to this point today. He is drawing all of us. There are markers throughout our lives that we can point to where God has been faithful. In fact, we could say it in the same way that just as the psalmist points back to the Red Sea story, 
God's faithfulness, God has always been faithful. We can look back on those markers in our life and say, God has been faithful. And today we get to, like the judge, (laughs) strike the bench and declare that Brent's primary identity is in his identification in Christ. We celebrate that today. The last verse of the Psalm, uh, of our section today, he will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This passage about, is about what happens to those who are in a relationship with God. When we think about salvation, we often think about how God will save us in the future, which is true, and of course he will. But salvation is something we participate in here and now. We put our trust in him. The challenge is when we speak a psalm like this, sometimes we look around and everything in our world seems the contrary to it. Okay, God will protect us. He'll be our refuge. He'll be our rescue. Like his angels will come and respond, but but everything else in the world doesn't look that way. What do we do with that? We, like the Israelites, have a hope that no matter what our circumstances are, no matter what they appear to be, no matter how many times Psalm 91 looks like it's been invalidated in our lives, God has parted the sea. Christ has risen from the dead. He has proved himself faithful. We no longer have to fear those circumstances, but we can trust the one who is both refuge and rescue. Amen.